following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah. We've already been in Isaiah 60. Now we're going to read in Isaiah 9. We're going to read the first seven verses, and we're also going to read the last verse of the previous chapter. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this passage together, let's ask for the Lord's help. God, our Father, we have sung together of a great light A great light that shone in this world when the angels announced the incarnation of your beloved Son. And a light that shone as we have in this passage in a dark place in Galilee of the nations. And we thank you, Lord, for that light that has shone in our hearts. And may that light now illumine our hearts that we might understand and that we might respond to your word, and to your Holy Spirit. It is our desire that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified, our Father, that your spirit would be free to work. And so we pray for your blessing on your word, and we ask it in the precious and in the worthy name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. 
Well, I don't know what's going on in your house these days, but in our house yesterday, there was a great removal of Christmas decorations. I don't know what it is about Christmas decorations. They give you as much joy taking them down, I think, sometimes as putting them up. But I understand, according to the the, uh, church calendar, that we were wrong to take down the Christmas decorations because... According to the church calendar, there are 12 days of Christmas, and we are on the 10th, so we're not done yet. In fact, this week, as our brother Pastor Mike mentioned in his prayer, uh, is a time of epiphany, which means shining through, and it's the time when we celebrate the coming of the wise men. You know, sometimes it can be a little bit blue after Christmas, because there's such anticipation, isn't there, in the season? There's such anticipation as we, well, not so much this year, but Christmas concerts with the kids and getting gifts ready for people and having meals, not so much this year, but um, being together and, um, and thinking and preparing ourselves to celebrate The coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is a time of anticipation. And for me, it sort of comes to a climax at Christmas Eve, at the candlelight, but not this year, of course, um, at the candlelight service. And then Christmas Day happens, but then it's done. And it's over. And life sort of goes back to the way it was, and we can get a little bit discouraged. And I wonder whether it wasn't that way a little bit at the first Christmas, those that were involved in it. You think of those shepherds in the field, and they're just doing their mundane shepherd work when all of a sudden the heavens open and all the heavenly hosts announce, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And they run to Bethlehem and find that baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And they go and they tell everyone. But then the days go by and the weeks go by and the months go by. And nothing really changes that much. And I wonder if Mary didn't feel the same way. Nine months of expecting this child who she knew was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And then that amazing event in Bethlehem and those shepherds come and they worship. But then everything goes back to normal. And the days go by and the months go by, maybe even a year or two. And she wonders, where are all the worshipers now, perhaps? And then there's a knock on the door one day. And there are these wise men, and they come and worship the child. And that's what we celebrate on Epiphany, is the light shining through. And it's so significant to us, because I suspect most of us here are Gentiles, because it reminds us that the Lord Jesus didn't only come for the Jews, but he came for the Gentiles as well. And that's so significant. Well, we're not going to talk about the wise men. We sang about them. We're not going to talk about them today. We talked about a light that shone through to them at the birth of Jesus. We're going to talk about that same light that shone through at another time, at the beginning of the Lord's earthly ministry. And we're going to study that in these verses in Isaiah 9. So when we're considering the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God. How appropriate that we find ourselves in the prophet Isaiah. You know, one of the things that I have been enjoying so much this, um, this year 
um, at Christmas is listening to the beautiful strains of Handel's Messiah. And if you're like me, you love Handel's Messiah. And it isn't just beautiful because of its brilliant composition, but it's also beautiful because the Messiah is comprised of 81 verses of Scripture. And of all the books that Handel borrowed from in the Scriptures, he borrowed most from the prophet Isaiah. In fact, 21 of the 81 verses in Handel's Messiah are from the book of Isaiah. So it's important that we get a little bit of context on the book of Isaiah um, before we go too far. Isaiah prophesied for 60 years in the 8th century BC. And he prophesied at a very dark time in the history of Israel. Because Israel had fallen into idolatry, both the kingdoms, the kingdom in the south, in Judah, which he was primarily a prophet to, but also in the north. In fact, the north is going to be, is really mostly the subject of this passage that we have here. And at the time when this particular passage was prophesied, down in the south, in, in Judah, it was a particularly dark time because they had fallen into idolatry. And so Isaiah is filled with warnings, warnings about what is going to happen to the people if they continue, and judgments that are coming. And sometimes it's difficult to read Isaiah because there's a lot of judgment that's coming. But punctuated throughout Isaiah is light, is hope, because Isaiah is speaking to a faithful remnant who is going through this dark time, but he encourages them by the promise of the coming Messiah. And that's what we get in Isaiah. That's what we have in these verses, is encouragement to a faithful remnant about the coming Messiah. So, in this chapter 9, Judah is being ruled by a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz is not a good king. In fact, he's a very wicked king. He constructs idols, builds idols to Baal. He even burns his own sons on an altar. And because of his idolatry, God brought upon him the Syrians. And the Syrians came in and took many in Judah into captivity. And to make matters worse, the king of Syria was allied with the ten tribes of Israel who were under a king by the name of Pekah. And he came in with the Syrians and killed 120,000 of his brothers in a single day. And if that wasn't bad enough, they also were being attacked by the Edomites and the Philistines. But rather than turning to the Lord in this, Ahaz takes the treasures from the house of the Lord and he gives them to the king of Assyria to make a treaty with him so that he will fight for him against his enemies, which eventually backfires. That's what's going on in the south of Israel at this time, about 735 to 715 BC. Now, what's going on up in the north? Because that's what this area that's talked about in chapter 9 is referring to, is the area in the north. It talks about the area of, um, of Naphtali and Zebulun, 
the uh, Jordan, uh, the, 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 the uh, place beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, we learn, we learn a lot about Galilee. We read a lot about Galilee in the New Testament. That, of course, is the site where Peter, James, and John were fishing, where Jesus called the disciples, where Jesus fed the 5,000, many miracles we read about in Galilee in the New Testament. But we don't really think much about Galilee in the Old, do we? And here we read what was happening in Galilee in the Old Testament, 750 years before the Lord Jesus came and began his earthly ministry. And what was happening there is they too had fallen into serious idolatry and the king of Assyria came and took them all into captivity. The last city to fall was Samaria after a three-year siege in the year 723 B.C. That's what's going on in the north. That's a dark time. But what I want to focus us on for a moment is what happened to that land that we're talking about, this geography around Galilee, after the Israelites were taken away by the Assyrians into captivity. What happened was the king of Assyria repopulated that area with people from the surrounding nations that did not know God, that did not serve God. And they came and they brought their, land, their idols into God's land and started worshiping their idols in God's land and it made God very angry. And God sent lions that killed some of them. And so the king of Assyria said, now, here's what you need to do. You need to go get one of those prophets from Israel that we've taken away and bring them back and have them teach you the law of God so that you can live in their land. And so he does that. And what the, the net and net of it is that they continue to worship their idols while they have this superstitious, weird, mixed-up fear of God. And so in 2 Kings 17.41, we read this, So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children. As their fathers did, so they do to this day. And this was the state of things in 723 B.C. And that darkness continued until the Lord came back, until the Lord until the incarnation and the Lord began his earthly ministry in Galilee. And to make matters worse, this was an area that was surrounded by Gentile nations. You had the Syrians to the north, you had the Samaritans to the south, you had the Phoenicians on the coast of the Mediterranean. It was a very densely populated area. It was an area about 50 miles long and 25 miles wide. And there was over 3 million people packed in there. And to make matters worse, there was a trade route that started up in Damascus and came all the way down through Galilee into Africa called the Via Marius or the Way of the Sea. And so it brought all the nations of the world into this place. And it became darker and darker. And so it's no wonder that when they came to the devout Nathaniel and said, we found the Messiah in Nazareth, which, of course, is a city of Galilee, that he said, what? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So that's the context. That's the context of what we have in these verses in chapter 9. With that, I want to consider these verses under three headings. I want to talk about the source of the darkness. 
I want to talk about the effects of the light. And I want to talk about enduring the night. The source of the darkness. The effects of the light. And enduring the night. So let's talk first of all about the source of the darkness. What was the source of the darkness in Galilee? What was the root cause? Was it the dense population? Was it the surrounding Gentile nations? Was it all these other things that we talked about? No, that was not the source of the darkness. Those things contributed to the darkness, but they weren't the source. You know what the source was? The source was that God's people turned away from God's word. And that always brings darkness. When God's people turn away from God's word. And we could read about that in 2 Kings 17, verse 17, or 7 to 18. We don't have time to read it all, but I'll just read you from verse 16. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. And made for themselves metal images of two calves. They made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. That was the source of the darkness. The source of the darkness was turning away, God's people turning away from God's word. And that always brings darkness into this world. When those who are entrusted with the word turn from the word, it brings darkness and it brings famine, as we have in Amos 8 and 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for the hearing For hearing the words of the Lord. Martin Luther, in his treatise on Christian liberty, put it this way, and I quote, The soul can do without all things except the word of God. And that where this is not, there is no help for the soul in anything else, whatever. But if he has the word, it is rich and lacks nothing. Since the word is the word of life of truth, of light, of peace, of righteousness, of salvation, of joy, of liberty, of wisdom, of power, of grace, of glory, and of every blessing beyond our power to estimate. On the other hand, there is no more terrible plague with which the wrath of God can smite men than a famine of the hearing of his word. As he says in Amos, and just as there is no greater mercy than when he sends forth his word, as we read in Psalm 107, close quote. There is no more terrible plague with which the wrath of God can smite men than a famine for the hearing of his word. Would to God that we fear that famine or that plague as much as we fear this plague. We're living in a very dark time, and don't blame it all on the policymakers. Yes, they contribute to it. But the real problem and the real reason that we are in darkness is because God's people turn from God's word. How is it that we, after warning people time and time again to take the word of God and read it for yourself and make it your own, it's in your own language, 
and to study it and make it your own, that we have people here that will go a whole week and not crack their Bible open once. That is the source of the darkness. That is where it comes from. That is precisely where it comes from. You want the benefits of a society that is enlightened by the world while you personally reject the word. And that is what results in the darkness. And when we turn from the preaching of the word to a social gospel, to a gospel that promises prosperity, when we add to the gospel or take away from the gospel, that is what led to the darkness for centuries in pre-Reformation times before the gospel was restored and brought light. But that's our second point, the effects of the light. If we were to go together to Geneva, Switzerland, and go to the Parc de Bastion, there you would see this imposing wall overlooking the park called the Reformation Wall. And there are statues of the great figures of the Reformation. John Calvin, John Knox, Theodore de Bezzi, and William Farrell. And etched into that wall are these words, these Latin words, post tenebras lux, after darkness light. After darkness light was the rallying call of the Reformation. Because for the first time, In centuries, the common people had the scriptures in their own language. For the first time in centuries, faithful men preached the word of God. They preached justification by faith alone, apart from works. And a light shone. And the darkness was banished. Because the light of scripture always banishes the darkness. Those people in the Reformation were like that blind man in John 9 who was blind from birth. And all he had ever known was darkness. He looked and felt around for someone to lead the way. But then he heard the words of the light of the world. He felt his touch. He obeyed his command. And suddenly his world of darkness was flooded with light. This is what happened at creation. Do you remember that how darkness was upon the face of the deep, and then God spoke. And God's word always banishes the darkness. And this is what happened in this scripture that we've read here. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, you see, it had become a way of light, of life to them. They walked in darkness. They dwelt in darkness. But the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You can say, well, when did that all happen? Well, We don't have a lot of time to look at it, but if we looked over into Matthew 4, at the beginning of the Lord's earthly ministry, that's when this was fulfilled. And I'll read from verse 12. Now when he, that's the Lord Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun. And the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Where did Jesus' ministry begin? Was it in Jerusalem? Among the faithful remnant that had returned under men like Ezra and Nehemiah? Was it there? No. It wasn't there. It was in the north. It was in Galilee. It was at the place that first fell to captivity. It was at the darkest place, at the darkest time. That's where the light shone. And that gives me such hope. And it should give you hope as well. Because where it is the darkest and at the darkest time, that's where the light can shine. And what are the effects of the light? What are the effects of the light? We see it in verse 3, 4, and 5. We don't have time to go into it right now. But in verse 3, we see that joy. It's joy. In verse 4, it's freedom. It's liberty. And in verse 5, it's peace. Joy, peace, liberty. That's what happens when the light of the gospel dawns. But where is that light going to come from? Jesus brought that light. The Lord Jesus brought that light, for he is the light of the world. But he died and rose again and has ascended to the right hand of his Father. Where is the light going to come from now? Well, I want to draw your attention to a little phrase at the end of verse 4. As on the day of Midian. What's the day of Midian? Well, if you recall, and we could find this in Judges 6 and 7, we don't have time to turn to it, but there was another time when Israel fell to their enemies. The Midianites came and descended on the land of Israel like locusts. They ate up everything that the Israelites grew, and they brought deep oppression upon Israel. So much so that people were hiding in caves and dens of the earth. But all that ended one night in a brilliant flash of light. You remember the story? How that Gideon, under the power of the Holy Spirit, with 300 brave men came, and he surrounded that camp. And the men came, and they had a trumpet in one hand, and in the other hand they had a torch. And covering that torch, they had a jar of clay. And at a signal from Gideon, they smashed the jar of clay, and the light shone out, and they sounded the trumpet, and then they shouted, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and the Midianites fled. And joy, freedom, and peace reigned, at least for a time. But here's the point. What did they have to do in order to, to dispel the darkness in the time of Midian? They had to unveil the light. They had to unveil the light and they had to sound the trumpet. And in 2 Corinthians 4, we read this in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I was talking to a brother from this congregation. He's not here this evening. But he was sharing with me his testimony. And uh, years ago, he was sharing with me that he was very antagonistic towards those that would try to preach the gospel, those that would try to share the gospel. And he made it his point to debate and debunk everything they said. And he told me he felt he did a pretty good job of that. But he said there was one thing that he could never refute. There's one thing he could never get over. 
He could never get over the peace and the joy and the humility from those that he tried to put down. And eventually, the Lord used this to win his heart and bring him to himself. You see, these people, they let the light shine through. But how does light shine through a jar of clay? Well, the answer is through the cracks. So we have in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Maybe this week you've cried out and said, Lord, why are you allowing all these things to happen in my life? Well, perhaps the Lord has allowed things in your life to produce the cracks through which the light shines out to a world that is desperate for the light that is groping in the darkness. Well, we've talked about the source of the darkness. We've talked about the effects of the light. Let's talk quickly about our last point, enduring the night. Enduring the night. You know, it's wonderful on a dark night, a dark, sleepless night, to know that morning is coming. But how do you endure through the night. And it occurs to me that this remnant in Israel that was living at this very dark time was given a prophecy that would not be fulfilled in their lifetime. In fact, it would not be fulfilled for 750 years. How does that bring hope? How does that bring encouragement? But you know, it's interesting to me that the promise is written in the past tense. Notice this. The people who walked in darkness have seen, past tense, a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Why is that? Why is this prophecy that was not to be fulfilled for 750 years written in the past tense? And I think the answer is this. That when God makes a promise, a future promise, it is as sure as if it had already happened. And yet the people living in that time had to make a choice. They had to make a choice. Are we going to focus on the darkness and the despair? Or are we going to focus on the promises of God that are as assured as if they had already happened? And we need to make that choice too, don't we, brothers and sisters? It's very easy to grovel in the darkness and the despair and everything else. But the scripture is replete with our Lord urging us to focus on his return. And so we have in 1 John 3, 2 to 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, who ha, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So faith enables a present enjoyment of a future reality, enabling us to sing in the night. Like Paul and Silas in that jail cell in Philippi, with their backs bleeding and their feet in stocks, they were able to sing praises. It's so much in our attitude, isn't it? It's so much a question of what it is we want to focus on. Well, we're talking about what helps us through the night. Another thing that helps us through the night is to remember 
that what dispels the darkness is not your wit, it's not your knowledge, it's not your energy, it's not how clever your arguments are. What dispels the darkness is the word. What dispelled the darkness in Galilee? A child is born. A son is given. That's what dispelled the darkness. Martin Luther, commenting on what overcame the papists and the vile practice of selling indulgences, said this, and I quote, I have opposed the indulgences and all the papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached the word, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. For it is almighty and takes captive the hearts. And if the hearts are captured, the evil work will fall of itself. The power, brothers and sisters, is not in our wit. It's not in our clever arguments. It's not in how many things we can post. It's not in how cleverly we can argue with somebody in social media. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to endure through the night, we must remember that the power is in the word. And this will give us a compassion for those in darkness rather than causing us to despise them. You know, we don't mock a blind man who stumbles and falls, do we? And when you see and you hear foolish things on social media, should our reaction be to malign and despise, or should our reaction be to pity and to pray and to pray? How well do you know the heart and the darkness and the pain behind the post? Let's be careful about our commentary on current issues and the types of articles that we choose to share. Let's never be guilty of mocking or maligning those who are stumbling in the dark. Rather, may our speech and our posts always be with grace. May we have the wisdom to know when to write, to speak, and when to write, and when to hold our tongues and our tweets. The night gives us a unique opportunity to let our light shine before men, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. And I don't want to be misunderstood, because I know that there is a time to answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. But let's be careful that we're not trying to put our wit ahead of the word. And let's remember what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, But be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. We're talking about enduring the night. The last thing that we need to remember to endure the night is to focus on the one who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You know, it's significant to me. That Isaiah gives the Messiah these names to a people who are under the reign of Ahaz, the wicked king Ahaz. Ahaz was not a wonderful counselor. 
as he cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God, and he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. He was not a wonderful counselor. But Isaiah doesn't focus them on Ahaz. He focuses them on the coming Messiah. What about mighty God? Under Ahaz, weak and impotent rule, the people of Judah were led into captivity and suffered untold damage. But Isaiah doesn't focus them on Ahaz. He focuses them on a mighty God. What about everlasting father? That is the last thing that Ahaz was, as he sacrificed his own children on an altar. How's that not like what we see today as our leaders clamor to increase rights to sacrifice preborn children on the altar of convenience and choice? But Isaiah doesn't focus them on Ahaz. He focuses them on the everlasting father and prince of peace. There was no peace under Ahaz, temporary, transient rule. There was only conflict. But, it says of this prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, in conclusion, I just want to say We are living in the coldest, shortest, darkest time of the year. And we're living in a dark time in history. But let's remember that it was at the darkest time in Galilee. It was in the darkest time when the light shone brightly. And that can happen today. And no matter how dark the time, the proclamation of the word brings light And that light is in us. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. And the trials and the difficulties that you are going through are not random, meaningless things. But they are carefully calculated and measured in the hands of a loving father. And it ministered to you to produce the cracks through which the light shines through to a world that is groping in darkness. And let's remember, too, that for every bit of news that we share that brings people down, let's share five times more about our Savior. Let's share, let's celebrate what we have to look forward to. The reign of our King, he does reign, and he will reign, and he reigns forever. And none of this is out of his control. Well, as we, before we come to the Lord's table, I want to ask you this. I need to ask you this. Unto us a child is born... Unto us, a son is given. Do you know him? I mean, I mean, not know of him, but do you know him personally? He gave his son for you. If you had been the only one that was a sinner, he would have given his son for you because it was the only way that a righteous, holy God could bring poor, vile sinners like you and me to himself. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You cannot, through your own merits, earn this. Because 
The merit is in the work of Christ. It's a righteousness that is outside of you. It's the righteousness of Christ. And by receiving him by faith, by repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, you become as righteous before God as Christ himself. Because you have his, you are clothed in his righteousness. And that can be your state tonight. You might have come in here in darkness, but you can leave with a glorious light shining within. And for those of us that know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, let's remember too that to us a son is given. And that son that is given to us this, this evening is here. And he holds out to us bread and wine, tokens, symbols of his body and his blood to remind us that he gave his life for us, that he shed his blood for us, that we are his and he is ours. And God is our father and we are brothers and sisters in Christ, pulled together by the strongest bond in this earth, and that is the spirit of God. So let's come together and remember our Lord at his table. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.